season. Othello is, of course, part of a remarkable Indian summer in the creative life of one of the greatest of all 19th century musicians. It was Giuseppe Verdi's penultimate opera and first performed at the Teatro alla Scala in Milan on the 5th of February, 1887. After the completion and the premiere of his opera Aida in December 1871, 16 years earlier, Verdi had decided that it was time to end a successful career as a composer of opera. Though he was by then the most popular composer in Italy, known all over Europe and further afield, and possibly the wealthiest ever composer in Italy at that time. Um, he might have happily simply retired to his farm and, as it were, cultivated his own garden. That wasn't the idea that his publisher had for obvious reasons, and he was to be coaxed out of retirement by that publisher, Ricordi. Ricordi decided to try to match Verdi with a younger man from the next generation interested in Italian opera, Arrigo Boita. And Verdi was at first deeply distrustful. Matters weren't helped by the fact that Boito was supposed to have said something that publicly slighted Verdi, and Verdi chose to huff a little about it. Nevertheless, the composer did agree to a suggestion that the two of them might collaborate on revisions to an opera from 1857, Simon Bocconegra. Uh, this, of course, may have been a ploy by Verdi to see how he might work with a younger man from what was already becoming a different Italian operatic tradition from the one that Verdi himself had belonged to and he'd forged very much in his own identity. It was also, I think, perhaps an opportunity to see how Boito might work as a librettist. But revisions were one thing, a new opera was quite different. Finally, after a good deal of plotting, Ricordi, who's an arch plotter in the whole of this story, in conjunction with Verdi's friend, the conductor, Franco Faccio, subtly again reintroduced the idea of a new opera to Verdi. It was during a dinner at Verdi's Milan residence during the summer of 1879. Gradually, the conversation was steered by Ricordi and Faccio round to Shakespeare's play Othello. And then on to Arrigo Boito, who Ricordi told Verdi was hugely enthusiastic about the play and longing to turn it into a libretto. Of course, what this conversation did was to capitalise above all on Verdi's principal fascination, which was with the plays of William Shakespeare. He'd already turned Macbeth into an opera earlier in his career. Uh, the great project that lay unfinished at his death was to turn King Lear into an opera. It's said that beside his bed throughout his later life lay the libretto he'd commissioned from a, a poet called Soma, but it never happened. Anyway, seven years after that dinner, we fast forward to the first night of a new opera that was originally going to be called Iago. Until the completion of the opera, preparations uh, for the initial performance were conducted in absolute secrecy, and Verdi reserved a right to himself to cancel the premiere up to the very last minute before the curtain would rise in front of an audience. He needn't have worried. Otello's debut proved a resounding success. The audience's enthusiasm for Verdi alone was shown by the fact that there were 20 curtain calls for him at the end of the performance. And further stagings of Otello, as it was now called, soon followed at leading theatres throughout Europe and America. Well, we're joined tonight by a quartet of guests to talk about Otello. Edward Gardner, English National Opera's music director, who conducts tonight's performance, will be with us later. The tenor, Ronald Saint, who covers the role of Othello, Othello, and Martin Fitzpatrick, who is assistant conductor in this production and a senior member of the music staff at Eno. 
and they're going to perform an aria for the, from the opera for us. But our first guest is the movement director for this new production by David Alden, Maxine Brown, who works both as a choreographer and director in opera and theatre following a successful international career as a dancer. Will you please welcome Maxine Brown? Maxine, it goes without saying that you trained as a dancer. Do you think that's an essential element in the life of someone who becomes a movement director, to have danced? Yes, absolutely. It's crucial to have um, studied to dance movement and trained as a dancer. Uh, it's important that you know what the body can do and what's safe to do, how to analyse movement so that you can pass it on to somebody who isn't a movement specialist. Um, the performing aspect, that's not quite so important although it really helps to have been on the other side of the footlights because then you can empathise with those people you're trying to direct. How did you make the transition, I mean, to being a movement director? Well, throughout my career as a dancer, I always would um, choreograph. I've never not choreographed. Um, and so it's been a kind of a, a crossfade between choreographing um, now a lot more and dancing less. But initially I was dancing more as a younger person and then... Um, choreographing not quite so much. I had a dance company myself um, for a while called Roar of the Sun and I've actually danced in a lot of operas here at ENO. Um, you have Ooh, the... Remind us, or is that ungallant? Oh, no, you? not at all. Oh, what, because of the dates? Um, no, uh, the first thing I did here was um, uh, The Adventures of Mr Brocek and it was an absolutely fabulous role. Um, normally a dancer doesn't have a role in an opera, but uh, David Poutney had conceived this idea of the little waitress who was the only person that understood the Czech landlord and <laughs> actually liked him, but everybody else thought it was a horrible character. And um, so uh, my first job was as this little waitress, um, and I thought all, all dancing in opera was going to be like that. It was a cruel revelation subsequently to be standing there and holding a bowl of oranges occasionally. And, but but, but, but the, it was wonderful. And you have the best seat in the house when you're dancing, it, it, better than the audience, I think, it, because you're right in the middle. You've got the orchestra on one side of you and the chorus all around that side and the principal's here, and the, the immersion in the music is quite stunning. And I remember thinking... I mustn't uh, become intoxicated because I've got to do what I'm being paid to do, which is dance. You've got to remember, girl, remember, you've got to dance next. Rather than but just presumably listen. it's a very different experience from a purely dance piece in that mm. you are not dancing all the time, but you are there on stage and you're part of a different kind of performance. Yes, but it's, it's, it's very often as a, a modern dancer, certainly, which is what I, I was, one would usually be performing to recorded music and the ravishment of, of live music in a full orchestra, not just a cello and a violin in the corner, you know, was, was quite stunning. And so it would be a very, very intense experience when you were dancing in that, this context. Um, when you're working on a production in, the, in an opera house, at what stage as movement director do you join the production? Well, that really depends on the director um, and, and what your relationship, what your experience with him is, and also how much he wants you there. I mean, some, some directors only want you there for the ballet in the third act, and, you know, you can go, go home after that. Whereas um, David Alden's conception of his... Um, he, I mean, this is um, like the 12th show that I've done now with David, and he integrates movement so thoroughly uh, throughout the entire production that... Um, he's got a very different take on the involvement of movement within a show. So um, 
couple of examples. Uh, I've done Otello once before with Tim Albury in Dallas. And we began talking a very, very long while before rehearsals began, possibly about six months, to, to, to work out who this character of Otello was, how he should be physicalized. Um, and uh, that was uh, you know, a, an extremely long lead time. Uh, David now, because I've, I've done so many shows with him, tends to, in a way, involve me quite late because I know he knows, I know what he's thinking. Um, and we'll often sometimes start talking about uh, a show that we're going to work on while we're working on another one because we happen to find ourselves in the same bit of Europe at the same time and it's a, it's a fabulous opportunity to. So that varies very, very much. And how much research do you do? for a production. I mean, do you go away, obviously look at the score, listen to the opera if you can, see it, I imagine, but do you actually begin to, to look back, say, at a particular period or the period where the director has chosen to set it and think about movement in, in, in historical terms? Mm, absolutely. I, I really enjoy that kind of research that, um, uh, very, very much. I try not to actually look at other productions because then you end up stealing ideas by mistake or, 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 having, or having an idea that gets inhibited by something you've already seen that you don't want to reference. So I, I try not to look at other work, but I really, really listen to the music and, and, and imagine. I lie on my back and I just imagine. I also very much enjoy the research particularly for Otello, and I, I mean, I, I resourced all of that, but the first time I did Otello, did a, a large amount of research on, on who that character could have been, who Shakespeare may well have seen uh, at the court. There's a particular character and a particular uh, oil painting that, that well, there's scholars... There's a portrait of the, of the ambassador from That's Morocco. That's right, the, yeah. yes, who, who is um, uh, an olive-skinned man. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. And, and yes, and then looking at the text and, and seeing, particularly when you've got... Um, you know, not just an opera libretto to resource, but a, a Shakespeare's play. How then to go into that and 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 try and resource um, all kinds of insights because then they will help you make original and bespoke material, not generic stuff, not habit stuff, but stuff that's absolutely pertinent to the music and and to the source. And presumably also pertinent to the singer-actor, too. It's got to belong to them. You've got mm. to convince them this is them, not something you borrowed off a, of a cook to put on their shoulders. Yes. So, so the whole process absolutely is a kind of a dialogue and negotiation between who you see there and their ideas about who they think. And there's often quite a feisty dialogue and your own, um, what you bring to it as suggestions. And very often, neither pathway is actually the, um, the ultimate, but, but it's the sum of the parts that are much better than either of your contributed ideas. When you arrived to work with David Alden on this production, I mean, what, what did he say to you? What was, what did what he was the brief? What was the brief? What yes. was the brief? Well, David's, um, he's, he, so much of, of David's work is done in the studio. I mean, of course, he knows the music inside out. Um, you know, he listens like a conductor in every layer of the lasagna. And he'll often say, but you know, you know where the cellos come in at that point, you know, and, and you go... Uh, well, I was listening to another bit, but yes, absolutely, I can hear it now. So um, he will um, he will give you... Uh, we'll look at the areas that we think that the dance or the movement aspects will be, but they inevitably change. Uh, he very often will put movement into a place where... Uh, it's not written in the score. And sometimes things where you expect there to be a dance and there should be, and you know, Verdi's written and then they dance, he'll have this very cold standoff or something. And often he'll go completely against what you expect, although it always, always is um, a very insightful way of releasing the drama. It isn't, it isn't um, uh, you know, 
um, perverse. It's, it's absolutely pertinent. It's just a way that very often hasn't been seen. And does he listen to you too? Does he want you to bring things that, that he may not have thought about to what you're going to do? Is this a collaborative process? Very much, yes. Um, and he often doesn't have a very specific idea of... He has a world and he'll know exactly when what I produce is right and he throws a huge amount of material out of the window and says, no, no, that's wrong, no, 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 no. You say, well, what do you want? Well, you know, and I... So I often produce a smorgasbord of, of, of options. Um, in my dance career, I've had a lot of different styles of performance and I, I relish research, so I've got quite a lot of pots to dip into. So I very often go, well, we could do it like this. No, no, well, we could do it... No, well, that's more interesting. And we sort of trundle off down that pathway. So very often it's a platter. And are there moments when you follow a path, when you realise you've gone up a dead end, oh, yes. a cul-de-sac? Yes, and what do you do? And what do you do then? Well, it gets ripped up and I start again. <laughs> that must be very despairing. Yes, yes. All that work. In a large glass of red wine and come back the next morning. Yes. And presumably the majority of the work on a production like this is actually with the chorus... Or is that a, a naive uh, assumption? Uh, yes, there's been a huge amount of work with the chorus. David very often uses a group of actors um, in his productions that often animate or heighten or maybe do more virtuosic things or can do things facing the wrong way when the singers are facing downstage. So there's, there's, there are nine actors in this piece. Sometimes there are as many as 16. Uh, when we did uh, uh, Verdi trilogy in, in Hamburg, we had 16 actors. So a lot of my work is with them. On this occasion, we also have a dancer and when a production requires... Um, children we have in this one. We don't have a dog, which um, we did in Katia. I was quite disappointed because I love choreographing dogs. But um, we, we, yes, so a this real old mixed bag. the last bag. word in choreography. I mean, the thought of actually choreographing a dog, getting a dog to remember the steps. Well, it's hard. They've got a good sense of rhythm, though, I find. <laughs> and, and with the actors working with the singers in the chorus, so integrating, is, is that a, often a difficult integration? Or, or do they come from the same sort of, as it were, training background that they can, they know what each, each group are trying to do? They're specially chosen, so they don't look like actors. As, as dancers who are often chosen in productions are not intended to sort of look like ballet girls that are standing at the back of the chorus pretending to be one of them until they do their number. So I, I audition um, very carefully and often David joins me so that you want people with those skills but that they look like, if you like, the common man or the common chorus or so that they can just step out and, and manifest rather than be flagged up before. I should remind you, we are looking at images from the production uh, so we can see uh, what, 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 what Maxine's work has been in part as we look at these images. Maxine, the last question. Um, how have things changed in the time you've been working as a movement director in the Opera House? I mean, have, has the, have you noticed huge changes in what singers are prepared to do and the, what producers ask of singers in the Opera House? Not particularly. I think, that, I think there was a huge shift when suddenly singers had to become athletic and inventive and physical actors in their own right, in addition to being able to sing like gods and goddesses and, and do what the conductor wanted exactly when he wanted. But I think that change had already occurred when I started working, and I take my hat off to them. I mean, they are extraordinary what, what they have to produce. Um, what I have noticed in the travels that I've done, different productions, is that there's a kind of a different 
nationalistic taste often to make a huge generalization. So um, I've just been working in Azerbaijan and I've done some work at, in Russia and you have a much more stolid stand and deliver kind of presentation there. Uh, in my experience in England and in um, Germany, particularly in Holland, an audience is much more open to receiving expressionistic, symbolic um, interventions and explanations within a story. Uh, in, in Italy, in um, the USA, I've been quite surprised. There's a, a much more naturalistic, traditional uh, taste for the way that uh, a narrative is, is distributed, and that, that, that's been interesting. So they want to see the ship. They don't want to imagine the ship, or they want to see the house. They don't want to imagine it. Absolutely, yes, yes. Maxime, stay with us. Thank you very much indeed. Um, stay with us. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and we're joined now by Ronald Sam, who covers the role of Otello, and by Martin Fitzpatrick, uh, assistant conductor for this production and a senior member of the music staff. Will you welcome, please, Ronald Sam? A simple but also, I suspect, an impossible question. Who, for you, is Otello? Otello is... He's a man of Moorish descent, and he's a general in the Venetian army. He's a supreme soldier. He's sent in uh, when there's trouble anywhere by the Venetians. He does all their hatchet work for He goes in, gets rid of the trouble, and... Uh, and is then replaced. In my own mind, that, for, for me, that helps. He's replaced, and in this opera, he's replaced by Cassio, that sort of thing. But I think it happens to him every time, so that increases his sense of insecurity. And does it also increase his sense of being an outsider? Absolutely. That he's, he's not a Venetian. Outsider. Yes. Yeah. He's not a Venetian and is not really treated by uh, others uh, of equal rank to him as a, as a Venetian. Like, say, Iago, Iago despises him. I think Rodrigo does not like him as, as well. You know, that sort of thing. So he really does feel that. However, from the people, he's very celebrated and, you know, he's loved by the people, loved by people like that because they love the victor. Yes. A question that often occurs to me is how deeply does he really love Desdemona? And to what extent does she become a kind of trophy bride? You know, she is the, 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 the typical Venetian, although we mm. don't in the opera have the first act we have in Shakespeare's play. It's perfectly clear that she is a Venetian, if you like, princess. Yes. Does he love her or she, has he acquired a, an important bride? I think, for me, I have to say, I believe that she, it is a love match. They are in love um, because she's the first person to really listen and be... She, she's, she's the first person to, to, to whom he opens up. He, he, he bears his soul, his innermost thoughts. They speak for hours, even though her, her father was present, you know, at, at, at many of the times. But they are deeply in love. It just so happens that she's very well placed in society, and I think that makes her even more attractive to him. Yes. And, and why is he so easily as it were, led into the terrible tragedy by Iago. What is it about Iago that, that, that gets under his skin and gets him? Well, Iago is a master manipulator. I think there is no one on stage that isn't influenced by Iago. He's the puppet master with all the strings, most definitely. And he is able to find out where people's weaknesses are 
Uh, and in the case of Otello, it's his insecurity with his love, his insecurity of being an outsider, and he just gets under Otello's skin. And Otello is very, he's very volatile. He is a volatile character. Um, he goes from zero to 60 in less than a second, yes. And uh, he, for, for that, that's what you really, that's, I think for me, the, that is what the character has to come out mainly, yes, first, first and foremost, and then afterwards everything. Well, what are the, <coughs> the vocal challenges? I mean, apart from the fact you have one of the cruelest entries in any in the opera with the Esaltati, what are the other challenges of this role for, for a tenor? Uh, it has to be stamina. Stamina, because Otello's hardly off stage. There are two breaks he gets, and I mean, you'll see tonight. But he's always there, he's always there. He always ha has to be singing, and uh, he's, it's heavily orchestrated. He has to get through the orchestra, orchestra all the time, be heard. And where it lies as well, it's quite very much in the upper passage area, and then up. <laughs> so, and, and to do that, to get through the orchestra as well, is very, very tough. But mainly it is a stamina thing. What are you going to sing for us now with Martin? Uh, this, this afternoon I'll sing, well, in Italian it'll be Dio mi potevi, but here it's God, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, well, thank you very much indeed. Martin Fitzpatrick to you. Thank you both very much. Um, Martin, a question for you. What, for you, are the pleasures of working musically on Verdi? Well, um, what's amazing about Otello and, and Falstaff is, as you, as you said in your introduction, he'd sort of taken time out, and it's, it's really amazing to see how his music has evolved. And uh, if there are two pieces that I think embody music that's, that's developed through the drama, I would absolutely say Otello and Falstaff are those pieces. And, um, uh, you know, he's, he's so far moved on from Traviata and, and, the, and the more number-based earlier uh, operas that he wrote. So that, that it's, it's difficult to find an aria from Otello. I mean, we've done that, but there's an, and, and there's one later on. But, but it's so integral, and you know, his fascination with Shakespeare, as you say, is so immense that he wasn't really interested in here's an aria and here's a cabaletta and here's, here's a recitative. Um, so it's all so through composed, and yet at the same time, it's fantastic music and it's so so well structured uh, harmonically. So, and you hear it, the structure so carefully in the aria you have just done with Ronald. You know, that divides into two parts, in effect. That extraordinary, persistent little rhythm and then drops down into the lower register, suggesting the kind of working of the kind of poison of jealousy. And then the kind of extraordinary declamation of the second half. I mean, the drama is absolutely in the structure of the music. It's absolutely in the structure of music. And, and also, uh, uh, as you're implying, it's, 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 in, the, it's in the orchestra. So, so um, what, what's great is... Uh, in that bit and in, in other bits, he, you know, he uh, he says, "Oh yes, I knew that." Uh, what, do you, what do you mean? And 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 you know that there's a little worm gnawing inside his brain because of what the orchestra does. And he uh, and and so all all that the uh, that the all that the performer has to do is very <laughs> difficult. But, but all that it seems to me that the, that the performer has to do is play the orchestra in their mind. And and Verdi has done the work for you. Martin, thank you very thank much you. indeed. Um, ladies and gentlemen, our last guest is Edward Gardner, who is the conductor tonight and, of course, also music director of the International School. We must give you a microphone, okay. so we, we'll, right. we'll lend you that one. Um, have you wanted to do Artello for a long time here? Um, if you had asked me before I started work on this, this and studying the piece, the late Verdi I'd, I'd have wanted to do was Don Carlo because I've sort of been obsessed with that as a piece of music drama for about, actually since I first saw it live about 15 years ago. Um, but, I mean, not dissimilar to what Martin's saying about it, getting to know this piece is extraordinary and it's actually through getting to know it that I've, um, that I've really relished it and realised how great it is. And as a conductor, it's a very... It's a, very, it's a combination of things. What Martin said is that the drama makes the music. You said the same thing. It's absolutely right. I mean, the way that, and you're here tonight, the way that the storm just explodes. There's no overture. There's no, there's no ceremony. I mean, it, it just happens, and it's there, and it's in the pit of your stomach. Um, is extraordinary. I mean, that, that is amazing to stand in front of. But the most... The thing that makes the biggest impression on me as a conductor is the soft music of the piece. And this, you know, Desdemona is a, as an almost religious figure and the sweetness and tenderness of her music. Um, the, the quietness of that scene between Iago and, uh, and Otello close to the, the end of the second, second act. Um, 
it's, it's this extraordinary range. And actually, as a conductor, what you're doing quite a lot of the time is underpinning conversation. And it's not like that in any other Verdi, I think. I mean, even Falstaff, you know, which is incredibly advanced as a music drama, it doesn't have that quality. It's still, there's always sort of rhythm in the text. But you're really, as a conductor, you're, a lot of the time, you're working out how to inflect exactly with how the singers are, are, are portraying their, their roles. Uh, off the top of my head, I would say, so, you know, the, the beginning of Act Two for Iago and, uh, and Otello is a, I mean, that simple conversation, which is underpinned by, as Martin would say, you know, little needles of jealousy or whatever. And that's, that's a challenge, but it's incredibly rewarding, actually. That's the most rewarding thing for me. As Ronald was saying, I mean, there are enormous challenges for the singer who takes the role of Otello, but there are challenges for all the principal singers. And I wonder what difficulty there is in actually performing this opera in finding the singers who can do it. Well, very, very good question. I mean, the one I'd add to Ronnie that was what Ronnie just said, which I thought was absolutely right. For Otello, I think the other thing is grading your anger. That's very hard for an evening, isn't it? Because you can't, you can't go too early... Um, I mean, both in terms of how your your voice is, but also in in terms of how the audience gets this crescendo through through the piece. Um, Desdemona, I mean, it's this multi-layered. I mean, these roles are so hard to sing. I mean, all all three of the main main roles. I think we. I mean, you're here an amazingly accomplished technical singer singing singing tonight who doesn't have a tr trouble with it and, and has a sung it. Leah sung it in Italian many times. Um, I, I think more in a more abstract sense, the difficulty for Desdemona is finding a route through a character which is portrayed quite sweetly, quite quite tenderly, quite holy, uh, holy by by Verdi, um, and not just it all being saccharine about it, having backbone. And that's what Leah's really she's consciously made that effort to find that. And um, well, Iago is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's it's that. Uh, Verdi sets it up, I think, more than, more than Shakespeare is the absolute polar opposite of Desdemona's sweetness. And, I mean, finding the darkness in that role and the, the, the quality of that. And, I mean, Jonathan is, is mesmeric in it, as you'll hear in a, in a short while. When, when you open the score as the conductor, what are the kind of principal decisions that you think you have to make about what you're going to do with the piece? What are the big strategic decisions about how to, to, to perform it? God, I don't know. Um, it's not, you don't, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know how, how I'd answer that. I think so much of it is, is text-based. And, you know, in English, I'm, I do things, that, I mean, Martin and I were, were talking conversations about, you know, the, the great uh, Fuoco di Gioia chorus, the Flames of Rejoicing, which comes, comes near the beginning, that actually, I, we probably do it in a different temper than how we would in Italian because the English has to speak, the language has to speak. And that's not just about doing, doing any opera in English. It's about, there's something about this piece which is, a, you know, you only find through rehearsing it with great singers, actually. Um, that doesn't really answer your question, but do you know what I mean? It's not, I, I didn't make decisions. I don't, I mean, I learned the piece and then together with the singers well, and directors, the, the question we, will be, we found it. As you worked with the singers, did your view of the piece change? Oh, yeah. Words, was it, yeah. I mean, is your final, or your current view of the piece determined by what you've learnt in the process? Yes, absolutely. I think, I, you, yeah, it changes through the process and that quality of, you know, finding that conversational quality. I mean, actually, strangely enough, the most, the thing I had most difficulty with learning the piece was what this great Act Three ensemble is you know, with Desdemona, Iago with conversation and chorus, this mellifluous sort of diaphanous chorus in the background. Um, 
And actually, that's the most musical part of the piece, isn't it, actually? That's the most operatic, you would say. It's not something which exists even in the Shakespeare play. I mean, it is a great, great set piece. And now that's something which gives me the most pleasure. Um, so generally, it was found in rehearsals, I have to say. I don't think you could... I think you'd be, especially doing it in English, where we, and we change in rehearsal so much of the text. This thing, you may have covered this already, but this thing about you know, taking a Shakespeare text, going through an Italian version, through Boito, back into an English version, which can't be Shakespeare because it's come from the Boito much more than Shakespeare. It's a tricky little thing, that, and, uh, and still maintaining some of the Italian character. So I would say all of us would say a lot of it was found in rehearsals. There's a, I suppose, celebrated meeting on a railway station in the middle of northern Italy, uh, between Boito and Verdi, late at night, when both of them have been to the first performance, I think, in Italy of Lohengrin. And which makes me wonder to what extent there is something Wagnerian about this score. Uh, not in any direct sense, but already Verdi, despite his protestations, is looking at what is happening north of the Alps. Mm, absolutely. I think, I mean, I hear... I mean, I, it's more about the... I mean, there's something of Tristan in it, I always think. I mean, if you think about... You know, there's, there's great statements of, of, of Otello to, to Desdemona, you know, I kiss you in English, and those, those added six chords, it feels, it's got that yearning of Tristan and maybe Dutchman for me, and yeah, I, I hear a little bit of Wagner in it. This is your last season as music director here, because it'll just give us a, a sort of quick curtain raise on what you're looking forward to. Uh, in the season that we've only just begun. What, what are the things that are, are going to be your kind of highlights? Well, I mean, watching... I mean, I'm not conducting, but watching the Fanchula rehearsal this morning is... We're, I mean, it's an absolutely extraordinary thing and as a piece and as a production and actually with great performances in, so I'm sure you'll all come and see that. It really is... I mean, it's wonderful that Rich has brought that, that piece to this, this house. Personally... Um, Doing, doing Meistersinger, which has such a long association with this house, is a, I mean, that's a real gift. And, you know, it's a piece about the creation of art. And to, be, to do that as a culmination of my time here with, you know, the chorus who, who I've worked together with for 10 years and the, and the orchestra is really, I mean, that's, that, that's what it's all about, that piece. Did you have very specific ambitions when you, when you took the job, what you wanted to achieve? No. And actually, I was very... I, I was much... Um, I'm much clearer about what pieces I want to now than I was then. I really thought I should do the big company pieces and see how they fit, really. And now, now I'm a little bit more careful about it. But I think, you know, a music director, it's important the music director does the big pieces that involve as much of the chorus and orchestra as possible. And, you know, to a large extent, that's what I've done. And looking back, um, what have been for you the great, the great kind of peaks uh, of the time which you've been here, either as music director or indeed in the pit? I mean, so many things gave me pleasure that might not have given you pleasure. I mean, it's really, it's so, it's so personal, that, that, that question, actually. But I, I mean, I mean, really so many things. I, I mean, I think that the, the thing that made me proud in a very paternal way was, was taking Peter Grimes to the proms. Because with this, you know, it's an, it's an opera written in English. It's an opera effectively written for this company with a completely internationally quality cast. Um, and just showing on an international stage, not here in our home, but showing on this stage that we could cut it at the highest level, that was a, that was a really big thing for me. And, and what do you think you're leaving your successor when he comes? Um, I don't know. And, and Mark will do, Mark's a phenomenal conductor and he'll take it in his own direction. I mean, I think, uh, all I have to say is that I think, and I can't really remember how it was when I started, to be honest, but I find 
standing in front of the orchestra and chorus at the moment a complete joy and I think I mean they're on a real artistic high and I'm sure they'll continue to be it's a purely personal question but I, I always wanted to ask you this I mean, do you think that every conductor needs to have spent time in an opera house wherever they conduct on the concert platform or later in the opera in other words you need to belong to an opera house as part of your career as a great conductor um traditionalists would say yes wouldn't they the people i mean it was a big big i mean all the great german conductors would advocate that and do it themselves i think i don't know i mean they're there are people who forge amazing careers just simply out of symphonic repertoire. All I can say is from my perspective, I think you learn so much in an opera house because you're surrounded by lots of things that can go wrong, children's choruses, animals on stage, etc., etc. You've just been thinking about choreographing dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. um, but actually, from, from my purposes, what you get in an opera house is you're, uh, as a young conductor, which I was one day, you know, a, a while ago. Oh, still. Yeah. still <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, is you're surrounded by brilliance, actually. That's the thing, isn't it? That you're, I mean, I've worked, I work, you know, working alongside a great director like David Alden, like Richard Jones, having Martin there, having these great, great singers around you. You're, you're surrounded by musical brilliance and you're giving, all of us are giving each other a, a kind of coaching every day. And that's, that's the education of being in opera. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand. If you would like to ask questions of any of our, our guests this evening. There is a roving mic. Put your hand up, catch my eye, and I will direct the roving mic to rove in your direction. Who would like to ask a question? It's going to be one of those wonderful English evenings. <laughs> we all look at our shoes and hope someone else will do the work. <laughs> Thank you. I just wondered how well Verdi knew Rossini's Otello and that influenced the way he wrote Otello. All I know about that is he, he, must have, he, he must have known it. I mean, he was very... One of the reasons he was reticent about calling this piece Otello and maybe Iago, you, did you cover that? I didn't cover that, but it did do. Um, was because the... the, 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 the there was, uh, it wasn't a tradition to repeat opera titles, actually. So he was very aware of his existence. I mean, it's a completely different piece, of course. But uh, whether he heard it or not, I don't know. I can't think where the last performances in Italy are. I ought to know, but I would suspect not. Though one has to remember he heard all sorts of extraordinary things uh, when he was a young man, particularly places like Genoa. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. there is a possibility. But what he might have known was the piece in the score, so he might have had yeah. it on a, on a table somewhere. You know, he's fairly voracious in what he's looking at. I think. Um, a good question. We should do some more research. Do we have another question? Anyone else like to ask a question? Then I think we shall fold our tent. Can I say thank you to all of you who've been here this evening? Can I remind you that underneath your bottoms, you will probably find a note on the other pre-performance talks uh, in the first part of the season. We shall look forward very much to you joining us for Fanchula, maybe next. In the meantime, can I also say thank you to our four guests, Edward Garner, Maxine Bram, Ronald Sam, and Martin Fitzpatrick. Thank you all very much indeed.